Greetings all and welcome to Margin Call, the podcast and editorial meeting for Quest On Media. I'm your host, Russell Morse. I want to remind everyone at the top of the show, once again, that if you're a fan of Margin Call, or an occasional listener, or a hardcore supporter, you can support our efforts by going to our site, Quest On Media, and clicking on the very chic, glamorous donate banner at the top of our homepage. We accept everything, all forms of currency. Uh, but if you like what you hear, go on to the site uh, and lend your support. We appreciate it. On tonight's show, we'll be discussing the plan to close the Youth Guidance Center, which is the Juvenile Hall in San Francisco. Uh, it's a place that's near and dear to my heart because I spent a lot of time there when I was a kid, as did many of my peers, uh, formative time. And it's now become a debate in the city and really kind of a national flashpoint because San Francisco would be the first city uh, not to have a juvenile hall. Uh, it would be a significant victory for people who do uh, advocacy work um, in juvenile justice, in criminal justice, and in mass incarceration. But like every social issue, it's complicated. Uh, so we've invited uh, an old friend, Carolyn Goosen, who works in San Francisco City Hall, um, with Hillary Ronan and has been instrumental in the planning. She can give us an overview. I'm very glad that she's giving us her time tonight. really helps to make sense out of all of it. Uh, but before we introduce Carolyn, uh, I want to share an audio version of a commentary that I wrote for the San Francisco Chronicle uh, detailing my thoughts on the potential closing of the Youth Guidance Center. Here it is. Requiem for San Francisco's Juvenile Hall by Russell Morse. I spent a significant portion of my teenage years as a detainee at San Francisco's Juvenile Hall. So when the Board of Supervisors vowed to close the Youth Guidance Center, a friend who works at City Hall reached out to me with the news. She quoted a fellow juvenile justice reform advocate saying, We have to burn the house down. As a person who has dedicated my adult life to criminal justice reform and advocacy for people behind bars, I understood the significance of the announcement. A lot of people worked very hard to bring us to this point, many formerly incarcerated people like me, and I applaud their efforts. But I have to admit, I was kind of sad. For those who spent time there, the Youth Guidance Center, or as we called it, You Got Caught, was home. We were all young people, children really, who had to one degree or another been rejected and abandoned by the adults in our lives. Many of us were in foster care. We'd been kicked out of every school we'd attended. We were survivors of physical and sexual abuse. We were from violent, poor, and neglected corners of the city. As bizarre as it might sound, YGC was the first place that welcomed us. Yes, YGC was a jail, and it was awful in all the ways that jails are awful. We were locked in our rooms for hours at a time. Many days were marked by harrowing violence and fear, and there was no shortage of cruelty and oppression. But we were also introduced to effective community programming, and we formed meaningful relationships with each other and with many of the staff. We were clever, and we knew how to have fun. There were board games on the unit, and it was only a matter of time before we dispensed with the boring real estate aspects of Monopoly and shot dice for the multicolored cash. When Monopoly was banned, an industrious peer figured out that we could make our own dice by pressing our institutional bread into small cubes, covering them in lotion, and leaving them to dry on the windowsill. We used our breakfast juice cups as currency, playing basketball for five juices, or betting our next grape juice on who would win WrestleMania. 
Anyone who's been to a jail will be familiar with these underground economy tactics and gambling as a way to pass the time. But our camaraderie went beyond pastimes. We worshipped together every Sunday, because atheist or not, church was the only time we got to see the girls. We sang along loudly to the hymns, giggling and clowning in the pews, and we bent our heads in earnest prayer when the priest suggested we ask God for some guidance. It seemed like a good idea. The counselors were tasked with typical jailhouse duties, locking us in our rooms multiple times a day, breaking up fights, and enforcing an elaborate draconian rule set. But they also took their role as counselors seriously, offering us guidance, support, and even entertainment. In my experience, the majority were genuine, compassionate, well-meaning people who wanted to help. One morning, I watched a counselor very tenderly teach a new detainee how to brush his teeth because no one had ever shown him before. Another counselor, a very hip young black man named Burris, would announce the dinner menu every night as we stood in line waiting to be seated, using the intonation and vocabulary of a server at a Michelin-starred restaurant. Good evening, gentlemen. Tonight we have a delightful Salisbury steak served in a house-made powdered gravy reduction. And every night he finished by saying, As always, we will be serving milk, which is available in whole or... And every night we called back in unison, Low fat! YGC is also where I was introduced to Jack Jacqua and the Omega Boys Club, which came to every unit once a week to host a lively, uplifting meeting where we talked about taking control of our own destinies, avoiding the perils of gang life, and finding meaning in our circumstances. It was where we started to learn about the social factors, racism, poverty, behind our childhood incarcerations. They trusted us with these complex concepts and encouraged us to stand up and testify. My first memorable act of public speaking was at an Omega meeting in B4 at YGC. The following week, I got into a fight, and Jack heard about it and took me off the list for that week's meeting. He came to visit me in my cell instead. You're a cool cat, man. Jack talks like a wild, wigged-out hippie. But you gotta get your temper under control. He reminded me that getting into fights on the basketball court was not in the, quote, Omega spirit. I learned more from that exchange than any other time I've been in trouble for fighting in my life. Most significantly for me, YGC is where I was introduced to David Innocencio in The Beat Within, a writing program that came to our unit and encouraged us to write, publishing our work in a weekly magazine. It was the first time any of us saw our names in print, and it was empowering. People in the unit were always on good behavior the night The Beat was supposed to come, because we didn't want to miss it. I credit The Beat Within with many of my successes in life, which include a career in journalism and a spot in the creative writing MFA program at NYU. The problem with all jails and juvenile halls is a societal one. We warehouse the vulnerable, poor, mentally ill, chemically addicted, abused, neglected, overwhelmingly black and Latino people of our society in violent and oppressive environments because it's easier than trying to address the complex issues that led them there. In that sense, it is a profound victory that YGC is closing. But here's the real reason I'm not doing a touchdown dance. It's easy to close YGC now because most of the vulnerable, poor, black and Latino children who used to fill its cells have been forced out of San Francisco, along with most of the people who have children. I'm aware that crime, particularly juvenile crime, is down all over the country. The national movement against mass incarceration has grown exponentially since the time I was locked up, and a huge number of people in society now recognize that incarceration doesn't work. But if I'm looking at San Francisco, the city where I was born and raised, I'm wondering where all the black and Latino kids have gone. I'm wondering where all the poor families with young children have gone. Are they getting adequate care, support, and intervention in the communities where they now live? Or has San Francisco's hyper-capitalism in the tech era 
made those families and those children somebody else's problem. Uh, Carolyn, thank you so much for making time. I want to introduce uh, our guest, an old friend, uh, Carolyn Goosen, who is the chief of staff to Hillary Ronan, uh, San Francisco supervisor. Um, Carolyn and I have known each other for a long time. And every chance we get, we talk about juvenile justice and uh, a changing face of San Francisco, among other things. Uh, and when this came up as a suggestion for a conversation, I wanted you to be here to help us uh, get an understanding of the plan to close the Youth Guidance Center, where that came from, what the vision is, uh, and how it kind of relates to themes of juvenile justice criminal justice and mass incarceration. I know that's a lot to ask, Carolyn, so I'm not <laughs> I'm not really going to put you on the spot for that, but I just I'm I'm really glad that you're here to kind of give us some context and um, supplement our conversation. So no, happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Anytime. Uh so I yeah, I'll start just by asking because I'm curious for myself and obviously for our, our readers. I don't know what the impetus was. How long uh have people been talking about closing youth guidance center when did it become something that seemed possible and how did that come up as a as a conversation in hillary ronan's office and uh in your advocacy so you know it's been about 20 years that folks have been talking about wanting to close uh the juvenile hall in san francisco and you know 20 years ago though it was largely coming from um, nonprofits who were working with latino and black youth who were upset by the conditions that they saw that are most basically marginalized young people were put in. And those conversations though, didn't quite make it into city hall. But in the past three, four years, as the numbers of kids who are in juvenile hall have gone down and gone down and gone down, and the budgets have stayed the same, there have started to be questions about it. It's something that I, since I started working in politics nearly six years ago, have been talking to people about. Before this, I worked with Russell at New American Media, um, and was an associate editor with The Beat Within, um, which is a magazine of writing of young people inside Juvenile Hall. And so when I came in to, to City Hall, I started talking to folks and have been having conversations for the past few years with more folks on the, on the left who have, you know, have a vision of kind of abolitionist um, vision for the future and for, for young people. So I've had these conversations on the, on the sides here and there, um, but... Basically, what happened was a few things. One, we had two new supervisors come and join elected office in San Francisco, Matt Haney and Shimon Walton, who are also very progressive and specifically interested in juvenile justice. And really, Shimon specifically represents the Bayview District, where the majority of young people come from, and he himself spent a lot of his youth in juvenile hall. So from day one, he was saying, yes, let's really shake up how we do juvenile justice Let's not keep doing a broken system. So we had a strong, a strong ally. Um, and Matt Haney, whose work before coming to City Hall, was working with Van Jones on Cut 50, doing national prison reform work. So we've been talking about this, like, oh, maybe in you know, a couple of years we can put this legislation together. Or you know, we were talking about it in broad terms. And then I got a call four months ago from Jill Tucker, a longtime education reporter at The Chronicle, who told me, Hey, Carolyn, I would love to get um, Hillary's uh, comments on some of this data. We've just been doing a year-long investigative journalism study into um, the massive waste of money across the whole state. 50 out of 53 counties in California have juvenile halls with much less than 50% 
um, population. San Francisco is spending $300,000 per child to keep them in juvenile hall. Counties like Mountain View are spending $500,000 per child to keep them locked up in a juvenile hall. What can what could we do with that amount of money? Let's imagine something, you know, so she was coming at me with this data across the state. At the same time, they did this, again, year-long investigative story on the plummeting youth crime. And this is not a new blip. This is since, you know, over 20 years, uh, really steep decline along the way. And all the experts predict this will continue to go down. So when she called me with that, I literally screamed at my office. I was like, oh my God, this is, this will help us take this idea we've been talking about in vague terms and actually push it forward now. Because now we have the data that for all the moderates and the people, the conservatives and the haters who, you know, don't, the moral impetus isn't enough for them. The fact that we're wasting money, the fact that we don't need it because the crime is so low, this will help us so much. And I said to my boss, hey, I think Hillary, this is the moment now. And so we went to Shimon and we went to Matt and they were like, yeah, let's do it. And so from then, from that moment, I went to the Young Women's Freedom Center, which is an amazing organization who's also been working for the past you know, three, four years focused on closing um, this juvenile hall, but also ending detention and incarceration of women and girls. And they said they also had been wanting to do this. And they also had thought it would be more like two or three years down the line, but they were ready to go. So they're like, yes, let's take this momentum now. Let's take this window and go with it. And so that was, that was, yeah, like four months ago. And we basically all came together together with Youth Law Center and brought a bunch of other folks on board and wrote a piece of legislation. And now it's been introduced and will go to committee um, next month in San Francisco. And my understanding is this is the only major city to be contemplating closing a juvenile hall in the country right now. There's a lot of other places that are looking at closing um, youth prisons um, where young people go after their um, trial, after disposition. And so like Delaware, for example, is looking at closing down their detention center. L.A. is looking at closing their detention centers um, or incarceration uh, prisons. This is the only place, interestingly, so far that's talking about closing a juvenile hall where kids stay before trial. Uh, yeah, it's a major coup. I was struck by the news. Obviously, I have a personal connection to it, but anybody who grew up in San Francisco knows that place and understands what a significant victory this would be. And anybody who's doing criminal justice or juvenile justice reform work understands what a big victory this is uh, or could be potentially. I want to give a shout out quickly uh, to Tanaya Jones and Candy Ifopo. I know you know them. Uh, they co-authored uh, the piece that ran in the Chronicle on the open forum with the headline, uh, Why San Francisco's Juvenile Hall Must Go. They made a couple points um, that expand a little bit on some of what you said. So I, I wanted to ask about it specifically. One thing that I found very interesting, I mean, this is a compelling piece of the argument, um, but uh, the Young Women's Freedom Center interviewed more than 100 young people uh, and found that youth are incarcerated in San Francisco Juvenile Hall for three reasons. This was one of my favorite uh, aspects of the piece. Those three reasons were school, foster care, uh, and crimes of survival, like shoplifting. I think whenever we talk about reform, a lot of times we forget about why people come into the system, you know, and we forget that very often, particularly for young people, it's because they were placed in the system uh, for no fault of their own right? People come from homes that either weren't supportive or maybe were taken away from homes that they maybe not 
should have been taken away from. And that's obviously a lot of the work that Mel Bernstein has done. Um, and the other thing that they did in this piece, uh, sim- you know, building off of what you mentioned earlier, is the amount of money that they're spending per young person, which I think you said $300,000. Is, mm-hmm. the, is that the number per young person per year? That's right. Uh, so they did the math. I know you're familiar with this paragraph, but I want to read it uh, for our listeners. Um, because they had wonderful imaginations about what you could do with $300,000 a year for a young person. Um, You could provide housing uh, for 16 young people, right? That isn't a jail, just a home, you know, a safe, comfortable place to live. Um, uh, Seven young people full-time jobs for a year, which is another part of the argument. If you help to get young people access to the economy, um, that kind of a lot of the a lot of the time addresses the social factors that bring people there, um, or uh, the final point they make is that you could pay for individual or family therapy for twenty eight young people, which you know uh, not coincidentally all of those proposed suggestions essentially address the three main causes for bringing people into the system, right? Uh, if someone's in foster care, it's because, you know, there's something going on at a familial level that they would benefit from support. Uh, if it's poverty or it's linked to housing, uh, it's just was a very, very well-conceived and well-written piece. And I wanted to shout them out. We'll include a link with this podcast to that piece so that people can check the whole thing out. Um, obviously, I can't go through every piece here. But my next question is about... Um, what is going to happen with that money, right? If this plan goes through and that money still exists and people are talking about putting it to better use, what are their proposals on the table right now? So as part of the legislation, um, which, you know, incredibly right now does have the support of eight out of 11 supervisors in San Francisco, so it will pass. It has enough votes to even uh, survive a mayoral veto. Um, But part of that legislation is clearly creating a youth justice reinvestment fund. And so the vision is that um, there's going to be a working group that spends the next two and a half years to figure out what are going to be the alternatives that we create so that we can close Juvenile Hall by December 2021. The total amount of money that that institution um, uses, the budget for the Juvenile Hall, is $13 million a year. So really... You know, oftentimes when we're talking about progressive reforms, the question is, where's the money going to come from? In this case, we have the money to do something new. What the vision is, is that for the young people who are in juvenile hall. So, for example, in December 2018, there were 40 young people during the month of December. Ten of those young people, due to state law, public safety reasons, would still have to be detained somewhere in a place that is run by juvenile probation. As per California state law, we do have to have that. And so for those 10 young people, we need to create something. Maybe it doesn't have to feel like a a huge institutional jail. It could be a house that's very secure, that has, you know, security guards and cameras and all of the things you need to have. But it could be in a house with 10 beds or 12 beds, whatever this working group of experts decides is the size that is appropriate for about 10 youth at a time that need to be detained. For the other 30 youth, Um, Some of those young people, about 30% of the kids who were there in December were there um, for a misdemeanor, for something minor. And even in our adult system in San Francisco now, we don't jail adults for misdemeanors, right? So there's places that folks can go. For some of young people, as you said, they can't necessarily be at home. And so we need to really look at what are, we need to create new things. Like if the group homes are horrible, if there are 
you know, not places for kids to be, we have a time and we have the money right now to actually pilot and create safe places for young people who do not have to be in a jail, but who can't be home. Um, and then about 20% of the young people who were in at, at that time in December were actually there post-adjudication. They're not even supposed to be in juvenile hall. They're just waiting placement. So again, it's like, where are kids going to go? What's safe? So the idea is, is taking this money, reinvesting it so that these young people can be someplace that's appropriate and more rehabilitative that can actually help them you know, move on in a, in a positive way. Have you identified community partners yet? I mean, are there specific organizations that you want to partner with or have expressed interest or that you, you know, is there a wish list? What, what kind of yeah, partners I mean, we've are you been, looking at? We've been collaborating with the JJPA, the Juvenile Justice Providers Association. So basically every nonprofit that works with um, justice-involved young people in San Francisco is part of this association. And we put in the legislation that on this working group, we have 13 people imagined in this working group. Two of them would be from that organization, representatives. Um, but, you know, this is, we can't, as a legislation, we can never spell out, we want this, you know, this funding should go to this organization. But of course, we are working with everybody in, the, in this world to get input. And when it comes time to the Board of Supervisors appointing who is going to be in all of the community positions, we're going to encourage folks to apply and we will absolutely want to make sure that the nonprofits who have been doing a really good job in this are part of the table. Um, and we also want to make sure that if there are, if there are gaps, because one thing I've heard is, you know, that some of the nonprofits have not done the best job of really uh, supporting our most low-income African-American youth from the Bayview, for example, and that we, we lack really excellent programs that specifically support their needs. So if we need to create something new, um, we need to have, we will have the people at the table to help figure out what are those gaps? Where do we need to do better? There's some places at San Francisco, we just need to expand and other, other areas we have to create something new. Right. So obviously you mentioned this earlier, but there are naysayers, right? There are people who have expressed concerns or are resistant to this plan for various reasons. Uh, can you give us kind of a snap, kind of a non-biased snapshot about like what kind of concerns people have and then maybe like a more biased pushback, but we'll start with the, just an overview of the concerns. What are people saying about why this is not a good idea? Some of the initial pushback, for example, the mayor in um, one initial interview said that she felt it was an irresponsible piece of legislation because we should not talk about closing it before we bring all the experts together to discuss whether it should be closed. So I think that there's been a few main areas and a lot of the concerns I think are, are worry that the proposal is just to shut down juvenile hall and not create anything in its place. Um, and that has created fear in the community that more young people would be sent out of state uh, or at least out of county. So another fear is that, oh, does that mean that there's going to be young people who have you know, been accused of serious crimes that are now going to be wandering the streets because we've closed the juvenile hall? So it's, a lot of it is just not fully understanding the legislation because clearly you know, we are saying we will create new places for people to go. We're not just, it's not just opening the doors and everyone is running into the street. Is that a legitimate is that a legitimate concern that people would be sent to different facilities as an alternative or is that as you say a misunderstanding is is that a, a possibility It's pretty I mean it's pretty clearly laid out in the legislation that we that San Francisco shall create alternative places for young people to go and we we have a two and a half year timeline to make it happen and so it's I think the fear that 
in the past we have seen um, young people being sent out of state. That's happened for a long time. They, you know, kids sent to Pennsylvania, um, other places that juvenile probation has actually already been doing. Um, and so there is that fear that that would then happen even more often. Um, another concern we've heard is, whoa, 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 this is too radical, too fast, too soon. Um, the mayor's initial reaction was was along the lines of, you know, let's wait and talk and have another task force and really not say we're going to close it, but rather talk about what changes we should be making before we, you know, make the statement that it should be closed. Um, our feeling and, you know, the various supervisors who are involved and the community folks is that we have been talking about this for an incredibly long time. There is, um, you know, it's not just about the waste of money but also it's, it's ineffective. It's an, an ineffective intervention to help young people uh, make a different path and, and rehabilitate. Um, if you look at you know, any data set across the country, including Nell Bernstein's book that you mentioned. And then thirdly, it, it, you know, it oftentimes is re-traumatizing young people um, and it's not a safe place for them. Just a few weeks ago, a girl had her um, arm broken in multiple places when a guard um, slammed um, down on top of her to try to stop a fight. And um, that guard or that um, counselor is still working in the juvenile hall. So, you know, I think there's a lot of fears and it's understandable. This is a big systems change. We're not talking about scratching at the edges of reform. This is saying let's actually close something down and create something new. So I think it's natural that there's a lot of fear and worry. And we should be focused on making sure that the alternatives are good and that we're not um, you know, having any un unintended consequences. And there's a lot of work ahead to make sure that this is done well and responsibly and thoughtfully. Right. Um, one thing I wanted to ask you, just because we haven't really had a chance to talk about it uh, before we get out of here, is about a piece that, uh, a point that I made towards the end of my piece about, um, and this is, again, kind of like a more of a macro issue, but thinking about the changes in San Francisco over the last five or 10 years um, and how many people have been priced out of San Francisco, how many people have been displaced. Uh, and, you know, for people, as you say, on the margins, overwhelmingly uh, black and Latino people, and even uh, people who have children have been forced out of and priced out of San Francisco. Do you, I make the argument, of course, that maybe that's the bigger issue here that we're not examining the fact that San Francisco is no longer creating communities for people, you know, for black people, for Latinos, for people who are living in poverty, people who are vulnerable and on the margins. And maybe that requires our attention as well. Um, do you see a relationship there? Are you having conversations like that in your office about like maybe the reason the population is so low at juvenile hall, or maybe the reason we're able to do, um, kind of such a radical thing with, with juvenile justice is because San Francisco doesn't have those populations at the same numbers anymore. Are you thinking about that or talking about it? I mean, I think we talk about that, of you know, the displacement of folks all the time in various ways, right? And we're talking about housing and, and, um, or schools and everything. In this case, though, because the numbers in San Francisco are not an anomaly in the state, it's the in the entire state of California has these numbers. The other thing in San Francisco's juvenile hall is that 87% of the girls who are locked up are black girls, and 70% of the boys who are locked up are, are young black men. And so even though the, it's now African-American population of 4% in the city, it's still by far the majority of the kids who are locked up in the city. And so even with, you know, communities being sent out, 
you know, because of issues in the schools, like you mentioned, and a number of other issues, we're still seeing um, these most vulnerable kids from the most, you know, low-income neighborhoods are still the ones who are being locked up. We're not seeing a change in the demographics, I guess, to reflect. It's not like we're seeing more white kids and Chinese kids because those are the growing numbers of kids, you know, in proportion to other kids. We're not seeing that at all. We're really just seeing a system that is really, like, focused on the children who are not getting other kinds of advocacy or resources. I don't know. What do you think about that, about the demographic? I don't know. I mean, I'm torn. Like I said, my response to this issue uh, was informed by a lot of things that are not uh, informed by policy, right? Like, I work for a public defender's office. I think about criminal justice and juvenile justice and systemic reform all the time. Uh, and I'm a person who used to live in that building that's not going to exist anymore. And I had my own bizarre emotional response to that. You know, I mean, I hear that Beach Blanket Babylon is closing in San Francisco. I hear that my Catholic parish from my childhood, Star of the Sea Church, is closing. Uh, I don't know if you knew that, Yiming, but yeah, Star of the Sea is closing. Um, and obviously, YGC is a jail, <laughs> and this is a huge victory. Um, but I always like to think about things in a holistic way. Like, what does this mean? And I don't know, it's hard at a distance also. I mean, I have to acknowledge flatly that I haven't lived in San Francisco in 10 years, you know? And a lot of this change I've witnessed at a distance and I've witnessed through people like you and people that we know and love who are still living in San Francisco who are very distressed about these changes. Um, and, you know, as, as one of my mentors used to say, I don't want to be a captive to nostalgia. I don't think that San Francisco has to stay the way it was in the nineties when I was growing up, I embrace change, change is what makes San Francisco wonderful. But I do have a lot of concern for the communities of people that I grew up with that I feel like made San Francisco great, who were overwhelmingly working people, mostly black and Latino and Asian uh, and white. You know, you think about Irish people in the, in the avenues, you know what I mean? Like there was a, a, a thriving working class in San Francisco uh, when I was a kid that's not there now. And I ask a lot of questions about what that means. And sometimes... Uh, I understand that uh, like symbolic victories are very meaningful politically and especially in movements like this. Um, but sometimes my brain goes outside of the political and I'm just I'm rooting around for larger meaning. So, you know, it's definitely not a, a, a challenge to the victory. I just like folding in additional questions because that's how my brain works. Absolutely. And I guess, I, you know, I, I, I hear that. And I, I feel like now that San Francisco has the smallest population of kids per capita of any city, where we have more dogs than children in the city, that we should be able to actually be on the cutting edge of how we wrap young people with resources. We have $11 billion budget. This is a wealthy city. We're about to have all these, you know, thousands more millionaires coming down um, with all of these companies, um, you know, going public. And so we have all of this money. Let's actually look at interventions that could really help young people and their families and wrap the whole family up in resources and support and not just go back to doing the same thing that this country has been doing um, for way too long. And, you know, the only other country that incarcerates young people at even close to a percentage of the U.S. is South Africa. That's it. No other country in the world jails as many children as the United States does. And so, you know, San Francisco, if we have this much money and, and this few youth, let's actually do something good. Let's actually try to do something different. Well, 
that point is a wonderful point to end on. I think it would be hard to argue with uh, providing children with services, as especially with the beautiful sounds of playing children in the background. <laughs> Uh, so thank, thank you to you, Carolyn, first of all, for the work that you're doing, uh, in my hometown to make it a better place for young people. Um, and thank you for giving us your time tonight. I really appreciate it. No, thank you guys so much for having me on. Thanks again, of course, to Carolyn Goosen for being here tonight. Uh, thanks to all of you for listening. I want to give a reminder, uh, that if you like what you hear, you can head to our page, click the donate button with the banner at the top questonmedia.com thank you for your continued support we appreciate it and as always thanks for listening until next time quest on everybody this episode of quest on media's margin call was produced in richmond california